Hello and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke and I'd like to thank you for joining me on this podcast series where we share conversations with colleagues exploring their special interests in medicine and bringing insights, ideas and advice which I hope will be applicable for our medical practices. In this episode, we're talking with an expert about fatty liver disease and the place of fibroscan assessment. So non-alcoholic fatty liver disease has emerged as one of the more important clinical problems being faced by primary care clinicians and hepatologists, and is estimated to affect 20 to 30% of our population, closely linked to the metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance and diabetes, and increasing prevalence of this condition mirrors the rising average BMI of Western societies. So what is it? Well, the histologic criterion for the diagnosis of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, NAFLD, is the presence of fat in more than 5% of hepatocytes. This deposition of triglycerides disrupts hepatocyte cellular enzyme systems, and in about 20% of cases, the cellular inflammation that develops may progress to the inflammatory condition known as non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, or NASH. This is thought to affect about 5% of our population. From NASH, further unchecked progression may evolve in as many as 10-20% to to develop established cirrhosis. Decompensated cirrhosis requiring intensive medical management or transplantation and or hepatocellular carcinoma development are all possible sequelae. In one British study in 2008, 12% of patients waiting for transplantation had cirrhosis from NASH. About 11% of NASH patients ultimately are considered to be at high risk of death from liver-related illness. Recognising and suspecting NAFLD and its sequelae is important in the development of effective management strategies and should be considered in all patients with the metabolic syndrome. Simple review of liver biochemistry, paying attention to indicators of hepatic synthetic function such as serum albumin and conjugated bilirubin, as well as the AST to ALT ratio, certainly plays an important part in clinical workup, as does paying consideration to clotting factor production and indicators of established portal hypertension, such as thrombocytopenia, indicating platelet sequestration. Certainly these all provide critical insights into altered hepatic function. And furthermore, when supported by hepatic imaging with the many modalities now available, embracing ultrasonography, CT scanning and MRI imaging. But additionally, liver hardness may be evaluated using a fibro scan. So how does fibro scanning work? Well, fibroscans measure the velocity of an induced vibration wave, the so-called shear wave, generated on the skin by a non-invasive probe by checking the time the vibration wave takes to travel to a particular depth inside the liver. Because fibrous tissue is harder than normal liver, the degree of hepatic fibrosis can be inferred from the liver hardness. As more fibrosis and scarring occur, the higher the liver stiffness reading will be. Taking about 10 minutes, the test is very useful in the assessment of patients with all forms of chronic liver disease, not just fatty liver, including chronic hepatitis C, chronic hepatitis B, and alcohol use abuse. By providing an estimate of the existing degree of liver damage, fibroscanning enables accurate non-invasive monitoring of disease progression or regression via serial measurements. This information is helpful in gauging prognosis and in helping determine further management strategies. Results are expressed in kilopascals. So fibroscan results may range from 2.5 to 75 kilopascals. Between 90 to 95% of healthy people without liver disease will have a shear wave measurement of less than 7 kilopascals. The median is 5.3 kilopascals. Validation studies, including comprehensive systematic reviews of studies that have used liver biopsies, the gold standard for assessing liver scarring, have indicated the optimal cutoff for the detection of cirrhosis is around 14 kilopascals. 
a patient with chronic hepatitis C, for example, and liver stiffness greater than 14 kilopascals has approximately a 90% probability of having cirrhosis, while patients with liver stiffness greater than 7 kilopascals have about an 85% probability of at least some significant fibrosis. Fibroscan measurements play an important role, therefore, in disease management and assessment, and consequently, the utility of the Fibroscan has become an essential part of the diagnostic toolkit widely relied upon by hepatologists. Well, are there any pitfalls of the test? Yes, transient elastography does not directly measure fibrosis and hence false elevations may be observed for several reasons, including liver inflammation, for example, from active hepatitis, from cholestasis, like biliary obstruction, mass lesions within the liver, for example, a tumour, and with liver congestion, for example, in the setting of heart failure. Uh, failure or unreliable readings are also seen more frequently in patients who are obese with BMIs above 30 to 35 kilograms per meter squared, in our older age patients, where there's ascites, and features of the metabolic syndrome where there's markedly increased waist circumference, that's the high BMI patients. Therefore, liver stiffness readings need to be interpreted carefully and with consideration to these potential confounding factors. Now, I was keen to explore this topic in more detail with our guest, Michael Broad, who has just completed the PhD exploring liver disease and mental health and is currently involved in establishing a fully integrated metabolic fatty liver clinic at Monash Health, bringing his own enthusiasm and intellect to this well-needed community service. Please welcome Dr. Michael Broad to the podcast. Michael Brody, thank you for joining me on Everyday Medicine. It's a real pleasure to have you here. I know it's quite late. Children are in bed. Thank you for making the time to have a talk about um, fatty liver fibroscans and, you know, this sort of huge epidemic, Michael, that uh, we're facing across uh, the Western world. And, you know, it's a real privilege to have you here with us and talking about this really, really important topic. And I've heard you give this presentation, Michael, in public. You've done incredibly well, so uh, it's really nice to have you here. Mike, t- tell me a little bit about your journey into, into gastroenterology and medicine, can you? Just take me through that. Thanks, Luke. So I started off as a burgeoning HIV scientist and um, about three uh, quarter of my way through a PhD decided that uh, it might be better to pursue clinical medicine and um, I didn't really look back, although I have ended up in the lab subsequent to that. Yes, I did my basic training at St. Vincent's Hospital and then did advanced gastroenterology training at um, Austin Health and then Eastern Health in my second year. And then progressed on to do a PhD for as part of fellowship year and subsequent clinical training at um, Monash Health. And initially I started working on stem cell-based therapies for fatty liver disease. So that was my next foray back into the lab. Right, um, right. And then matured on from there to start looking at liver disease in people with serious mental health issues. And that's where I started doing population-based fibroscan to assess liver severity in a cohort of people who generally marginalize in terms of access to care. Um, and that was, that was very interesting. We saw very high rates of hepatitis C, seroconverted hepatitis B and fatty liver disease, of course. And, um, sort of got a very clear idea that there's, that there's this, a cult or even sort of insidious uh, progression towards fibrosis that happens in people that otherwise might be feeling well. And so yeah. from there, I've now started building up a metabolic fatty liver disease platform at Monash Health, and that's something that we're working on and obviously doing some extra work privately in the fatty liver disease space. Well, I think you've really, you've kind of, you know, you've brought fibroscans and and the 
kind of a better understanding of liver disease to the public community in which you're serving, Michael, which is fantastic. And it's something that we definitely need, um, you know, and um, I, I really want to expand our discussions about that, about how we approach fatty liver disease, um, perhaps a little bit about the pathophysiology and then, you know, how we stage patients and what we should do about it. They're the sort of things I'd really like to discuss with you. And I thought I might just very briefly present a case to you, um, which is not an uncommon sort of scenario we have in clinical practice. Uh, this is the case of a 45-year-old female patient and who's got some background history of mild hypertension and she's had a DVT actually in the past. She's also got hyperlipidemia and was recently diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, which is uh, which is a huge issue now developing uh, throughout the Western world. She presents with mild upper abdominal bloating, no change in bowel pattern, and she's on some eloquence and rosuvastatin and metformin. And uh, in the workup, uh, before the patient's referred to you, there's some liver function tests that have been done uh, in which the ALT is 78, the normal is about 35 to 40, the ASD is 65, normal kind of same range, 35 to 40, ALKFOS 150 units per litre, the normal is less than 110, Gamma GT 92, normal less than about 50, and the albumin uh, 34 grams per litre, normals 35 or above, and the bilirubin is normal at 10. Got a normal full by count, except that the platelet count is just slightly low at 140, and the platelets were not reported as being clumped. So a normal range above 150. And uh, there's a correct coagulation profile that's been done that is also normal. So slightly abnormal liver function test there. Altman slightly low, plate's just fractionally low. She's uh, on examination, uh, has some truncal obesity, and uh, she weighs 103 kilograms. It's only 156 centimetres tall. So there's a BMI sort of the mid-30s there. Um, nothing much to find in terms of stigmata of chronic liver disease. But she she is a patient that's presented to you for workup. Just Take us through this. What, what's your sort of approach to this kind of clinical problem? Absolutely. So this is a problem that we see quite commonly in clinical practice and a constellation of medical issues that really fit in with the metabolic syndrome. Putting aside the DVT, this patient has type 2 diabetes. They've got dyslipidemia, hypertension, and obesity with a BMI of around 34. So the patient presents with bloating, and of course we need to go through the algorithm of workup for yes. abdominal discomfort and bloating, but it, this may be due to right upper quadrant discomfort, perhaps in the context of hepatomegaly, so that's one thing I would be thinking about um, yes. in the context of deranged liver function tests. We obviously need to go through a thorough medical history and ascertain whether there could be any other risk factors such as blood-borne viruses. And we know that she's also on a statin, which sometimes can be associated with very mild LFT derangement, but usually um, usually this is quite rare and often, sorry, it's just quite mild and often transient. Um, the patient has mixed liver function test derangement. The first thing that to say is that the platelet count is low, and this this may well represent portal hypertension, so splenic sequestration of platelets, and that's really the biggest red flag in this presentation from my perspective. Mm. And this sort of really increases the acuity or the urgency to work this patient up into stage of their liver disease. The other thing, fatty liver disease very commonly presents with an increased ALT, but not always. So as people get progressive fibrosis, we can actually see the ALT even normalize as you get um, loss of functioning hepatocytes. The gamma GT sometimes will go up as well as we've seen in this case. So this is almost, the GGT is 92 and almost um, double the upper limit of normal. Yes. The ALP is slightly out of keeping, and I wonder whether this patient could have concomitant vitamin D deficiency. That's something that I would look at a little bit separately. Right. Okay. 
As as you're saying there, sometimes the LFTs may normalize as fibrosis progresses and the patient may evolve into a cirrhotic pattern. It, once that is the case, are you going to see uh, as a little clues to that in the biochemical um, workup, perhaps a worsening thrombocytopenia, uh, a deteriorating serum albumin, or, or not necessarily so? So not always the case, Luke. There are some patients that we see in clinical trials in particular who've had liver workup and staging, and sometimes we do get a little bit of a surprise in that their liver function tests look fairly bland, but they do have, um, could be F3 fibrosis, for example, or even cirrhosis. Yes. So with it, I'll tell you this patient has had an ultrasound, and you've gone on and, and that's been done, and it's shown moderate steatosis. Uh, the really the spleen is just at the upper limit of normal, and there's nothing else to find. Call that as normal. There's nothing else of concern. Um, what would be your approach to this patient, uh, knowing that information? So again, I think we haven't fully delineated the severity of liver disease in this patient. Mm. So we know that she's got thrombocytopenia and borderline splenomegaly, which again may indicate that there is some evolving portal hypertension. All things being equal, and the portal vein is of a normal size. I still want to characterize the liver severity. So the first thing that we can do is plug in some of these parameters into a calculator and a commonly used one would be the FIB4 or nephil fibrosis score. And both of these are available on platforms like MDKelp. I can tell you that in this patient, I quickly plugged in the numbers and she comes in at an intermediate range for FIB4, which in that case, you generally would suggest formal staging, which would be through something like transient elastography or fibro scan or perhaps even a liver biopsy. Yes. Where are those calculations found, Michael? How would how would uh, general practitioners find that? So MDCalc is a platform that I commonly use, and you can just plug in um, the, the parameters that you need, and that could be a combination of blood-based parameters and anthropometrics. Right. And it's very quick and easy to use, and it can also give you some, some of the guidelines behind the evidence and links to papers. So uh, that's the one that I tend to go to. MDCalc, so just Google that, and you'll get MDCalc will come up, and yeah. then it becomes yeah. self-evident how you manage that. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, you're you're putting those numbers in. You're doing this calculation, and then what? Uh, what are you going to do? Well, this patient comes out in an intermediate range, and even even if I hadn't done the calculation, I'd still be concerned that this patient could have significant fibrosis or cirrhosis. So, mm-hmm. either way, I would be wanting a fibrous scan in this patient, and that would help give us a score that would guide uh, further intervention and management um, and longitudinal surveillance. How do you how do you undertake the fibro scan, Michael? What what does that involve exactly? Yeah, so essentially it's a point of care test, and we ask patients to fast for three hours before the test, and they'll come in on the day. They'll lie flat in a bed, and they'll just expose their right upper quadrant. We apply some gel to the right upper quadrant over the ribs, and we then put an ultrasound transducer between the rib spaces. And using a mechanical impulse, which reverberates from the liver back to the transducer, we can then ascertain the liver stiffness. Um, so it uses a, a clever bit of um, a bit of technology and something called the Young's modulus. But either way, it gives us a point of care score, and we can quickly tell the patient whether they indeed have uh, no fibrosis, significant fibrosis, or even cirrhosis. What, what sort of score would tell us about fibrosis in terms of kilopascals? So anything above seven would generally indicate uh, sort of mild fibrosis. Um, once we get over about 12 and a half or 13, it would be significant fibrosis. And then the cutoffs do vary depending on the condition. 
Um, I found in an audit of patients at Monash Health that 20 was a very good cutoff for detecting cirrhosis. But obviously, if you use such a high cutoff, you're going to miss a lot of cases of people who, who may have significant fibrosis or even some cirrhosis. So I think we, we need to be a little bit careful about the cutoff. But anyone with the cutoff over 12 and a half, I'd be very seriously thinking requires either a biopsy or some longitudinal surveillance. Yes. So when someone comes in, Michael, and they've got abnormal liver function tests and they, they do have a high BMI, you're going to be perhaps thinking, well, one of the major etiologies for their abnormal FTs is uh, fatty liver, uh, which could be uh, just non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, progressing into steatohepatitis, fibrosis, and then cirrhosis. And I'll ask you to expand on that in a bit in a moment. But um, if their LFTs were kind of normal and you're just seeing this patient for, for some other reason and they're a bit overweight, how do you get a sense that they've got underlying liver disease? So there may not be all that many clues, you're saying. Like there may not be that much necessarily even on clinical examination in terms of stigmata that have developed or that obvious. Yeah, I think those situations are challenging and we sometimes do need to exert some clinical pragmatism and not necessarily screen everybody. But I think if it's a patient that's um, getting ad- advancing in age and they're accumulating metabolic dysfunction, particularly if they develop type 2 diabetes, I'd be very interested in staging their liver disease irrespective of whether they've got abnormal liver function tests. And we may only do that um, once in a lifetime or it might be every five years or so, but I think it's a good way, a good yardstick to really know that things are hopefully going well and if not, yes. to try and affect some interventions early. Um, there are no real consensus guidelines about who to screen when, when somebody has steatosis um, to guide whether they've got fibrosis or not. But I think, again, a good, a good yardstick is older age and accumulating metabolic dysfunction. Right, okay. So you've got... You've got the patient who you've demonstrated to have fatty liver because they've come in with abnormal FTs and there's an ultrasound that's been undertaken um, and there's a strong clinical impression of that underlying condition. You might then want to go ahead to do a fire breast scan and stage that patient. But then there's this other group of patients who've got metabolic disease. And even if they don't have necessarily clearly obvious liver disease on LFT profile, you may still have to progress on and really consider staging them by fire breast scan, which gives us a good sense of fibrosis and then what their potential prognosis is going to be. Is, is that your kind of conclusion? Yeah, I think so. If you've demonstrated yeah. steatosis, then once they've got accumulated metabolic dysfunction, it's, it's good to use some kind of you know, yes. calculator or score and fibrosis is a very, uh, sorry, fibro scan is a very useful one just because yes. you get that point of care impression. Yes. A plan from a hepatologist. Yeah. And not it's not an invasive chance, so the patients aren't. They're not in any way uh, kind of distressed by that by that study. It's extremely helpful, I think, extremely helpful. Yeah. Um, Mike, tell us a little bit about the pathophysiology. What do we understand about this condition? Just run us through that quickly. Yeah, so fatty liver disease, it's, it's thought to be a multiple hit process. Um, and by that, we, we think about environmental factors and genetic factors that can predispose to aberrant accumulation of fatty liver. Uh, fatty liver. So essentially, um, we have thing, we, we obviously live in a very calorie dense and rich environment and access to food is very easy. And historically, we would have had a genetic propensity to try and retain food in cases of starvation and retain nutrients. So that's, that's part of it. There's a genetic basis. There's the access to food availability. And I think in the context of those uh, two cofactors, we can end up with excess circulating triacylglycerides and free fatty acids more specifically. Those free fatty acids 
tend to find a home in the liver yes. where they convert it into a more stable form of triacylglycerides. I mean, you get an excess of triacylglycerides of more than 5%, you get what's uh, hepatic steatosis. When compensatory mechanisms, uh, in tandem with that, I should say that there's this process of de novo lipogenesis. So the liver itself can convert other metabolites or metabolic byproducts into um, triacylglycerides as well in the context of nutrient excess. Yes. Um, and a lot of the, the, the coupling of de novo lipogenesis and excess free fatty acids in the periphery is also driven by this concept of insulin resistance, which we're all aware is a, a common and increasing process. So once we've got excess triacylglycerides and we lose compensatory mechanisms, one can get free fatty acids within the liver and those can create oxidative stress in the liver and the liver will try to repair itself and in doing so hepatic stellate cells, for example, become activated and can lay down collagen and metalloproteases in the liver and that can lead to accumulating liver fibrosis and remodeling of the liver architecture. In time, when you get confluent fibrosis or bridging fibrosis that becomes cirrhosis and that can start to really damage the architecture of the liver and the ultrastructure of the vasculature, mm. which can lead to a combination of both reduced synthetic function in the liver from loss of functioning hepatocytes as well as portal hypertension from those microvascular changes. And they, those in tandem can lead to the complications of liver disease. Um, in concert with that, once you have a damaged liver, there's also increased risk of dysplasia and evolution of hepatocellular carcinoma. Uh, beautifully described, Michael. Beautifully described. I can see one of those meta drawings in front of my eyes as you're describing that. Uh, take me through this, Michael. A hundred people, a hundred people who've got fatty liver. So r- roughly, you know, what sort of percent are we going to see progress on to more serious pathologies? Can you give us a rough breakdown of that? Yeah, so about one in five of those people will develop steatohepatitis. So that's a more inflammatory phenotype that I discussed once there's yeah. a loss of those compensatory mechanisms. So there's some genetic um, process that's driving that. So there's uh, 80% perhaps don't get that, 20% do because of some genetic factors perhaps and maybe other biochemical pathways that aren't entirely understood. Yes, it might be the, the amount of insulin resistance that they have underlying. It might be other, um, other systemic inflammatory processes. We know that rheumatoid arthritis appears and psoriasis appear to be associated with progressive fatty liver disease. And some people have said that that's due to methotrexate, but it could actually just be the underlying systemic inflammatory burden and accumulating yes. insulin resistance. So yes, there will be a percentage. We can't always ascertain who that is. And the unfortunate thing is to diagnose hepatic, uh, hepatic, sorry, NASH, I should say, steatohepatitis. That's a, a biopsy driven diagnosis. So that's what makes some of the natural history a little bit difficult to understand because we don't always get a biopsy for every single patient with NASH or MAFLD. So it's not okay for us to say, well, the fire breast scan is, is giving us a high figure. There's going to be some NASH there. Can we, can we draw that? Conclusion. Like, do Once we get a high reading on fibrous scan, we can infer that at some stage that there was hepatitis and inflammation that's led to that fibrosis. Yes. Okay. So uh, we've got that group now that have progressed on and they've got NASH. Uh, from there, what happens? What happens to that group? That cohort? So, yeah. So we're now down to around 20 from 100 and another five of those. So another one in five or so will develop um, potentially a significant fibrosis. And then a percentage of those people develop cirrhosis. And, and from there, there's a risk of decompensation or hepatocellular carcinoma. The best evidence that we have 
probably is from population-based fiber scan studies. And one of the biggest studies was done in Palermo, Italy, where they looked at people who um, basically were all comers, I believe, over the age of around 55. And they found that there was evidence of liver fibrosis in around 5.5% of that population. So not all of them will have had cirrhosis, but certainly those patients or people, I should say, are on a trajectory towards developing cirrhosis um, if it's not already developed. And what sort of time frame are we looking at from for them to develop from someone who's got fatty liver to develop uh, Nash and then into a cirrhotic stage? What what's the usual sort of do we know the the sort of time frames that uh, we should be considering? Yes, yeah, so I think it again depends on cofactors. Uh, so if somebody has bland fatty liver, there's no concomitant alcohol use, hepatitis C virus, for example, and all things being equal, they have the same diet and the same other metabolic risks, and they're just accumulating over time. We could expect that they might go from steatohepatitis to cirrhosis over a 20 to 30 year period. So it can be slow. Hmm. There are some people that develop cirrhosis a lot quicker, but that's the sort of outlier. And we also know that people can reverse stages of fatty liver disease so long as they're not overtly cirrhotic. So you can actually reverse degrees of fibrosis through interventions. Okay. Well, it's a, it's a pretty grim end for some of those patients, uh, Mike, isn't it? And that's why you want to be staging them by the fibrous scan and intervening. Tell us a little bit about the sort of interventions that we can consider with our patients. So the best evidence is dietary. And the first component of that is the metabolic, uh, sorry, is the Mediterranean diet. So ostensibly that's reducing carbohydrates. So bread, rice, noodles, pasta, potatoes. It's also reducing refined carbohydrates where possible and particularly packaged foods. Mm. In sync with that, we'd like to increase their uh, oily fish, so tuna, salmon, sardines, mackerel, lean proteins, whether that's animal or plant-based, and try and increase leafy green vegetables and things like walnuts. So that's that's one of the main interventions. And in fact, with the Mediterranean diet, we can see a reduction in steatosis, even in people that are calorie neutral who maintain their same body weight. Okay. The next way to reduce steatosis is by reducing about 7% of body weight. So that's been shown to be quite effective in reducing the degree of steatosis. And fibrosis regression can be seen in people that lose 10% of their body weight. Mm. And that can be through dietary interventions. And that, that's probably the best way to, to go about things initially. Failing that, we do have some medications that can um, biologically um, or pharmacologically reduce weight. And a commonly prescribed medication, I'm sure as you're well aware, is semaglutide, a GLP-1 agonist. And finally, people that have tried every intervention, whether it's dietary or pharmacotherapy, and they're still having trouble with weight, you can think about bariatric surgery, which has been shown to be very effective in well-chosen candidates in terms of reducing liver fibrosis stage. One needs to be cautious that a patient doesn't have portal hypertension before embarking on that sort of surgery. <laughs> um, yes, yes surgery might be a bit of a shock. What's that? Yeah, well, surgeon would certainly get a shock in that in that instance. <laughs> that could have a disastrous consequence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they need very careful workup, don't they, for bariatric surgery for sure. Uh, so, I mean, that, I mean, that's quite a that's that's a very um, dramatic kind of take. But certainly, the bariatric surgeons are, um, you know, there's always stories that are come from coming from the bariatric surgeons about how they can help metabolic syndrome and and assist in the management of, of fatty liver. Is there any other pharmacological treatments, Michael, that that are you know we talked there about the GLPA? GLP um, receptor agonists, but are there any other drugs that have been used that have been shown to have a, an, a, a good efficacy for management of fatty liver? 
so we've we've there was a Pivens trial which looked at vitamin E and pyoglitazone and that that showed that both could reduce hepatic steatosis, but didn't really show a good improvement in fibrosis endpoints. But in a patient who doesn't have diabetes or impaired fasting glucose, it's quite reasonable to use vitamin E, the number needed to treat of around 4.8 to reduce hepatic steatosis. Um, and the dose of vitamin E would be about... I was just going to ask you what the dose was. What, what are you recommending? Yeah, so it's 800 milligrams, but I, I find that we, it's easier to access 1,000. So that's what yes. we would tend to use, yeah. Yes, okay. Um, in terms of other drugs, we, we're running quite a few uh, phase two and phase three trials at the moment, but no other pharmacotherapies have really been borne out as efficacious at this stage. But I think the the next, the, ne- the momentum will really shift towards antifibrotic therapies, which will hopefully have some efficacy across the board of liver disease, in fact, not just fatty liver disease. What, what's happening in that in that sphere, Michael? Can you tell us a bit about those? They sound interesting. Yeah, so the the main moment that we have is actually with PBCM. We're looking at a NOx inhibitor, which is something unique from a molecular level that I hadn't seen before, but that's, that should be quite an interesting compound. I, I have a feeling that could be quite useful in conditions other than PBC mechanistically. There's... Uh, uh, no other antifibrotics have really shown uh, a lot of efficacy just at, at this stage. In terms of fatty liver disease, we're also looking at combinations of medications and, and we're trying to look at a combination of antifibrotics and GLP-1 agonists. And this is something very much in the pipeline and quite new. Yes. Um, we're also looking at um, amino acid compounds and N-acetylcysteine, which might have some reduction in inflammatory effect and novel GLP-1s with glucagon receptor agonism. Um, so that's sort of a hopefully a synergistic mechanism. But uh, these these are early days, and I think we're about three to five years away from any real data on on those therapies. So maybe an interesting future coming up, but the big the big uh, sort of push is good control of the metabolic syndrome, good glycemic control, the diet you mentioned, uh, uh, weight loss 7 to 10%, avoidance of other risk factors like alcohol consumption, and um, removing any other medications from the system that might be causing problems, and um, you know, close review, and of course, very importantly, the staging, Michael, the fibroscan staging that's, um, that you've mentioned that really gives us a good handle on, on, you know, what the prognosis is going to be for that patient. Yeah, uh, that's really very, very helpful. Michael, you've got a stellar career coming up, I think, in a very big, uh, very big field, um, you know, in front of you. And I'm sure you're going to have a tremendous impact on patients in your community managing this very difficult problem. Um, Mike, tell us, as you went through your training, um, uh, was it with the, was there something that really stood out in terms of advice that you were given by by a mentor by one of your colleagues? Can you can you think <laughs> can you think of something that really stood out uh, other than good left field question other than don't do other than don't do renal medicine do gastroenterology? Was there something else? I think that uh, I'm actually taking some students for long case preparation at the moment, so okay. they yeah. <laughs> spending an hour with the patient and working them up from head to toe. I think one of the big points that's come from that and one one what my mentor told me at that stage is really think about the patient holistically and uh, what can you do at that point in time that's really going to improve a patient's quality of life. And I think a lot of what we're talking about today marries in with that. It's really trying to improve lifestyle and with that hopefully improve patients' global health outcomes, reduce um, morbidity both from fatty liver disease and the extra hepatic sequelae, which, which we haven't really spoken about, 
um, hopefully improve energy levels. And um, yeah, I think that's a, a nice sort of big picture perspective that I was given at that stage. Michael, thank you very much. I really appreciate you taking time. I can hear your children in the background there, <laughs> I think, calling out. Really appreciate you uh, spending the time, Michael, to talk with me tonight. Really, really, really uh, tremendous effort. Thank you so much. Thanks, Luke. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you for joining me in the conversation with Dr. Michael Bright today. I really enjoyed this discussion on fibro scanning. I think it's an investigation we all need to be aware of in regard to liver assessment, in particular when we confront patients with metabolic syndrome. Please consider it. It's a very helpful way of assessing our patients and guiding our management. During the podcast series, we'll be covering a wide range of topics across many specialty interests. The discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only and reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation you've listened to are welcomed and maybe email to manager at gihealth.com.au. Thank you.